You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 348 with Ken Dodd and Jim Bowen gone. Have we seen the last of the end of the beer comedy? Now, personally, I feel their quality of their comedy elevated them way beyond the status of end of the beer with all its connotations, but we'll see what Terence and Juliet have to say on the matter. Now, football fans, come to terms with it. You're just supporting actors. You don't matter. <laughs> and phrases that put your teeth on edge. Oh, it's all coming up after Stevie Wonder and Signed, Sealed, Delivered. Incredibly mature and confident production, uh, considering he was 19 years old when he recorded, produced and released this single, co-written with his mother... Uh, oh, that's, that's amazing. That's such a great little factoid. It's unbelievable. I just imagine me and my mum writing the song. I can't see it any well, to be honest. No, nor me either. No, that that would that wouldn't just simply wouldn't work. Oh, you can't say that. It, you know, <laughs> uh, Stevie Wonder from 1970, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. It's got such a great bounce to it. I remember when I was at university, we had quite an, an amusing woman that was our equity and trust um, landlord. And I remember her talking about um, 
rules of equity and rules of property law and her talking about something called the four unities and i remember her saying that she felt it sounded like a motown group and hardly anybody <laughs> reacted this is a huge left theater and then weirdly despite that having not got a reaction she then talked about how the how a deed had to be done under seal and signed and then she paused and said signed sealed delivered i'm yours and actually the hall then erupted mm. clearly stevie wonder had cut through better than motown in general i always i know i, I know i say every time we play stevie wonder's song from his vintages and I always say you know, remark on his age at the time but you know, it's just extraordinary 19 years old and he'd already had about 10 hit singles no was he, well, he was little Stevie Wonder wasn't little he little Stevie really? Wonder yes but, but you know like, like you say the, the idea that, that you, you, it's just so much to him isn't it he does stuff and uh, you forget that it was him so, he, so I heard Mr Know It All the other day and it's oh yeah of course that's Stevie Wonder isn't it I just, I just forget he's just mm. lobbed out so much amazing stuff Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 348. I'm Terence Stackham, and oh, this is a really feeble intro, oh, but no. we'll, we'll go for Signed, sealed, delivered, she's yours. It's no, Juliet Harris. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it? it's, it, it, you know, I, I, I do feel that, that it's not your best it's work. It's not the best. But equally, it's not your worst, disappointingly, <laughs> as well. Anyway, hello, everyone. Hope you're well. Um, British comedians, it's rare um, that their careers flourish beyond the UK, and of the two British comedians who died this week, Ken Dodd and Jim Bowen, it's unlikely that our listeners outside the UK will even have heard of them, never mind seeing their acts. That's, that's, curiously, that's true, isn't it, really? Mm. I'd never thought about that, but I think you're right. Very rare that British stand-up comedy uh, travels outside the UK. Jim Bowen was best known for being the host of a game show in the 80s and 90s, uh, which, which had an extraordinary retro feel to it even then. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Almost like, it's like a time travelled from the 1950s. Well, it was the sort of thing that used to be on when I when I was little. I used to watch it at tea time at my granddad's house on a Sunday. And looking back on it, I was talking to someone the other day about how lots of things what I watched in my childhood were repeated. Mm. Um, and Bullseye felt like repeats when yes. it wasn't, if you see <laughs> yeah, what I mean. Ex- well, very well put. Mm. Um, uh, Jim Bowen, sort of kindly, sympathetic host. Ken Dodd, who died this week, aged 90, was an enormously famous figure for decades in Britain, mm-hmm. both as a comedian and a singer. And such a unique character that it's impossible to ke- compare him to any other performer, really. Now, although we still have uh, Roy Hudd uh, with us, we, we really are seeing the end of a particular type of British comedy. In a sense, it's, it's rather old-fashioned, that, that mm. not adult or blue, but w- with a sort of nod and a wink of Britain of post-war rationing, milkmen who maybe popped in for more than a cup of tea at number 22, and uh, sort of double entendre seaside postcards. And I realised that another renowned comedy figure, Eric Morecambe, actually died the year you were born, Jules. So, oh, really? Oh, I didn't 1984. know 1984. So mm. I'm wondering if for your generation, people like Ken Dogs, Ken Dog, they, they, you know, they seem like relics from a faraway land. Well, it's funny you should say that, actually. A lot of people, obviously when he passed away, had kind of stories of Ken Dodd's kindness. Mm. And actually, a friend of mine does. Um, my mum's best friend's son had a sort of a craze a few years ago of wanting to go into stand-up comedy. And 
he wrote to Ken Dodd oh, wow. and asked if he had any advice. Mm. And Ken Dodd said, oh, I'm touring near you, as he always, almost always oh, yeah. inevitably was. Um, on this date, uh, you know, I'm on this date. If you can come, um, let me know and we'll get tickets sent to you. And you must come and see me and we can talk. And so, you know, he said, oh, yes. And my friend wrote back and said, I'd love to. The tickets arrived. Him and a friend went and they saw Ken. I can't remember if he went and saw him after or before or after the show. But he went backstage and saw Ken Dodd, and Ken Dodd gave him a cup of tea, and they sat and they had a chat, and he, Ken Dodd sort of explained bits about his career and was very encouraging. And so actually, weirdly, Ken Dodd does still mean stuff to my generation. He played several times in Bexhill, and I really regret not going because mm. it was kind of, you know, these famous five-hour kind of shows where people were sort of midnight and people <laughs> were leaving. And weirdly, Eric Morecambe is one of my favourite comedians. I Again, I seem to grow up with constant repeats on TV and they're still constantly repeating now every Christmas my family still behaves as if it's the 70s and we can because BBC2 constantly show all the good Morecambe and Wise Christmas specials and there was that brilliant drama on this year called Eric, Ernie and Me on BBC4 mm. with Stephen Tompkinson in it about Eddie Braben and yeah. it was brilliant and you know and so actually Eric Morecambe particularly does still mean a lot to me and these comedians I mean yes perhaps they're not quite the I mean Eddie Izzard and Harry Hill were the comedians of my youth and it's, mm. you know, perhaps they're not quite and goodness gracious me and smack the pony and spaced and things like that and sort of that was very much 90s and early noughties comedy so they weren't necessarily the comedians of my movie youth but i get how they're important they were still on a lot i still watched bullseye as a child on tv and i read a really interesting little it started off as a twitter thread i think and then the chat was commissioned to write about it for somebody um there was always a kind of a joke about jim bowen saying you know or super smashing great which he claims he never said mm. and i think it's another play again sam thing isn't it that you sort yes. of you know, it kind of passes into legend and uh and why not barry norman claims mm. he never said and why not and he was allegedly it was said once that he said to someone what do you do for a living and they said i'm unemployed and he said oh super smashing great but actually mm. interestingly he it wasn't like that until this chap um his name's david hill did this kind of little twitter thread which then got written up in the eye um and he made the um he was watching, they're always showing Bullseye on um, mm. Challenge TV, Challenge, which yeah. is, yeah, which is this kind of, for people that, that are outside the UK, it's, uh, uh, it's one of my favourite channels, actually. Mm-hmm. It's this weird little channel on digital. It's not, you can get it on digital as well as Sky, hence why I can watch it. And it's just a constant wall-to-wall game shows, usually of yesteryear, although they do show stuff like Pointless and The Chase sometimes as well, the modern ones. And this this chap was watching repeats on challenge of bullseye and he talks about the fact that the first series is broadcast in 1981 jim bones from blackburn originally and they talk about the fact that um you know there was a huge decline of industry which particularly affected the north of england because that's where a lot of the heavy industries were based and how so many people that go on it seem to be unemployed because they're sort of working people that go on it and uh, that went on it and and they were working in these kind of manual industries mm. and he has a lot to say about how Jim Bowen shows a lot of camaraderie and a lot of kindness to these people and asks where they're from and if there's much work there at the moment and it's kind of a shocking indictment really as to as mm. to kind of what what's what was going on then so actually weirdly I do although they might not necessarily have been 
around that much uh, not contemporaneously around with me apart from to bullseye but it was they were repeated i do i do get their importance i do get that they were very important for a, for a certain generation and that they had important things to say and do and I, I don't know. There are aspects of, you know, Jim Jim Bowen got in trouble for using a racist yes. expression once. There are as- aspects of their of their lives which I feel should remain in the past. Having said that, though, I do think there were important things to remember about them. And I, and I do think that I agree with you that not all comedy travels, not all mm. comedy kind of travels between decades. But equally, if something is as good as um, as Eric Morkman and, and Early Wise, if something is really that good, it still stands up. There's a reason why Dad's Army is constantly repeated on Saturday evenings because it's still really good. It still works. It's it's the comedy that it's based on is not and zeitgeisty comedy. And weirdly, some of the comedy of the '90s and the early noughties that I used to watch, like Smack the Pony and Goodness Gracious Me, looks really quite dated now. It's dated far worse than stuff from the '70s, and because stuff like Dad's Army and Forty Towers and places like that, oh, sorry, sitcoms like that are. Mm. They're about human relationships. They're about. They're not trying to be based on the news. They're not trying to be based on you know necessarily socially relevant things or socially relevant trends. They're being based on life, really, and it's the humour of life and and the humour of relationships between people and sort of tensions and class struggles and things like that. So actually, in a way, I do think that this kind of old comedy parts of it might yet still travel. It's a very interesting question, I think, whether comedy travels Mm. well through generations. I listen a reasonable amount to BBC Radio 4 Extra, which... Oh, yes, what was BBC 7, yeah. That's right. Here in the UK, it it broadcasts rather vintage comedy and drama on the radio. And I found that whilst the drama is still quite listenable... Yes, very true. Most, I think, of the comedy shows from the 1950s in particular make me wince and I know Mm. I reach to change the channel. Radio 4 Extra, it seems it's obsessed with shows like The Navy Lark and The Men from the Ministry and they're just excruciating Mm -hmm. Yes, it's true. I I was wondering if today's uh, top comedians in the UK... um, Michael McIntyre, Mickey Flanagan, John Bishop. Yes. If, if they put in the amount of preparation that Ken Dodd under, undertook... His, oh, absolutely. His obituary in the stage uh, newspaper this week, Ken Dodd, said that he even went to the extent of keeping what he called a, a giggle diary of the UK, noting what gags were best in each town so that he could tailor his act and target the jokes to work better in each region which seems I think that's terrific well he was an absolute you know craftsman really and apparently a very fine man as well to boot so uh, I think you know that that's incredible isn't it really the 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 five or the six p's depending on if you want to be sweary Mm. about proper preparation preventing poor performance I mean that is Mm. and that's why he lasted as long as he did frankly because he worked hard he worked hard to stay relevant, not in the sense that, you know, he tried to put cool jokes into his act. But like you say, he worked really hard on what worked and what didn't. And he had a, a, a sort of a, a good sense of who he was. And he didn't try to sort of chase trends. Summed up by the lovely joke that was quoted on the front page of The Guardian when he died this week, saying, oh, I understand that alternative comedy is where you're meant to laugh at every other joke. And that is such a terrific <laughs> line because it's so it's knowing in a way that people don't 
don't associate with Ken Dodd's silliness because it is acknowledging the fact that he is not alternative comedy. You know, the alternative comedy in a way came along in an attempt to usurp traditional people like Ken Dodd. But in a way, he's kind of mocking it, but gently enough and still in a really clever and witty way. I think that kind of sums up how good Ken Dodd is really and how that he might stand the test of time in a way that the shouty, well, particularly the shouty 80 mm. alternative comedy, when you look at it now, you just think, oh, you know, so the young ones and stuff like that, it's still good, but it's it's such a period piece. Not the 9 o'clock news, for example. It's, it's, it, it was still fun to be had, but it's such a period piece that, you know, I, I think we wouldn't, we mustn't necessarily write off people like Ken Dodd standing the test of time, because I think they might. I have a very quick story, and also endorsing Ken Dodd's general night it mm-hmm. was 90, summer of 1990. My then girlfriend and I were on a train at Waterloo. It was about to pull mm-hmm. out. And at the very last second, on jumped this man, and it was mm. Ken Dodd. And um, he came into our carriage, and he made no pretense of, like, wanting to sit quietly and, you know, leave me alone. He immediately sort of, oh, you know, you know sort of went into his act the minute he sat down. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he was on his own. And... Um, he said that he was appearing at Stainstown Hall because we was on we were on the um, Waterloo to Weybridge line, which goes through Staines. And he said he was appearing at Stainstown Hall that night, and he was on his way. And there was about ten of us in the carriage, and for the entire journey between Waterloo and Staines, he was just joking and and you know chatting with people and asking where they were from, and then making a joke about it. And um, he he misunderstood what my girlfriend said, but he thought she was from Staines. He, mm. he, he said, that's not really the point, but he started singing um, some old song from the 1950s, which was called Lady of Spade. And he said, Lady of Stains, I adore <laughs> you, and all this sort of thing. And, you know, he kept this up for the 30 minutes from, from oh, that's Weybridge lovely. to Stains. I mean, that is so lovely. Mm. Football supporters, you need to understand that you're just supporting actors, just extras. You have no say in the way your club is run. That's next after Elvis Costello.
say every time I hear this anyway, I am um, I do cannot help but break particularly if I'm wearing tight jeans, I cannot help but break into that kind of weird stick your that knock kneed kind of weird dance flinging your legs out to the side that he did in the video. I'm a huge fan of that. I just think it's got immense energy. When I was involved in punk rock karaoke before just before Christmas, that was a popular number. Several people fought over doing that with a live band. It was it's it's great. Elvis Costello and pump it up. It's an astonishing era, era that he had in the late 70s and early 80s mm. when Elvis Costello, he seemed to write a hit single every five minutes. Um, but I always felt that Pump It Up, I love it to bits, but it was rather sort of Bob Dylan-ish. And in his autobiography, which yes, I read last very year... Much, it's very much a subterranean homesick. He acknowledges it, exactly that. Out. Cheerfully acknowledges the, shall we call it, the inspiration of subterranean <laughs> homesick debt, blues yes. in, in his autobiography, <laughs> yes. A lot of people all around the world, but especially in the UK, will have mm. seen video footage or photos of the incidents, protests, if you like, at the former Olympic Stadium last week, as some West Ham fans shown their show, they show their dissent with the ownership about the way the yeah. club is run. Uh, several hundred angry men, of course, uh, gathered under the director's box, and we saw co-owner David Sullivan sitting in his, his uh, padded seat, sorrowfully shaking his head. It all looked mm. um, remarkably like a scene from ancient Rome where crowds passed judgment on gladiators. Increasingly, supporters from clubs throughout football are becoming more vocal in their dissent if their club slips down the league positions. From Arsenal through to Sunderland, fans are rebelling, but they don't seem to realise that their protests more or less count for nothing. We live now in an age where football clubs have sold their souls, their history, and the the well-being of their supporters, by the way, for the huge sums, the huge sums paid by television companies... For most of the teams in the Premier League, for example, the the big majority of their income is from television money. And um, I, I did some research this week and I realised that one example is Bournemouth um, in the Premier League. Last year, television money accounted for 86% of their income. Gosh, now, no, I didn't know that. I mean, I suspected it was high, but I wouldn't have thought it was amazing. that high. That's incredible, yeah. Some more comes from sponsorships. So a very small minority of their income is derived from people paying to sit in the stadium. So supporters attending games matter less and less. So those West Ham fans are more likely to be banned from the stadium rather than affecting af- any change. And they're just, you know, they're just not wanted, those sort of those sort of people. Now, in 2018, Jules, football fans attending games, they're just no more than supporting actors. They're just extras. Well, and I, I think you're probably right, but I do think this will backfire on football clubs in the end. Um, what you say about the idea of sort of, you know, that moving on, uh, that this kind of moving of grounds mm. generally, and West Ham are not the first people to do this and they won't be the last, it really does kind of rip the heart out of mm. out of place. And there was a really good piece this week, actually, which is really relevant to this, and I am going to do a bit of a poor self-promotion at this point, so I apologise for this, but um, I've started writing a weekly email, mm. which I've rather ungainly called the Jules Letter because I couldn't think of anything better um, that, that has gone out and I'll try and post a link on my Twitter afterwards mm. um, and it's I, I wrote quite a lot this week about sort of Brexit and working class communities I got very taken by a programme called Back in Time for Tea on TV which I would recommend it's excellent following a northern family eating their way kind of through the decades and there was much talk about football in that and uh, the family come from Bradford so they cover the Bradford Valley Park fire and this kind 
kind of attitude from people in London, as they put it, writing in the Times saying, oh, this is a chance of football to clean up its act. And the idea that, you know, it was a decade of pain for football, really, the 80s, because up until, I think, the onset of Sky and the the beginnings of the telly money, it genuinely was the working people's game. Mm. It isn't now. You can't say it is at all for many reasons, but not least because of, you know, the money involved and how much it costs you to get to the ground. And this article by Richard Williams in The Guardian, which I refer to in my email, is about the move from the Berlin ground to the Olympic Stadium and how it has literally it's left a whole bunch of stuff behind the the Bobby Moore and Martin Peters statues are still are still at the old ground mm. and there's a campaign to stop them from being moved um, and Jeff uh, Jeff Hurst and uh, Ray Wilson in these statues mm. as well um the pie and mash shop is still there um the supporters club is all padlocked up at the moment the social center and they're deciding what to do about that um West Ham were very much the working club. They were they were very much the kind of English. You know, they fed the nineteen sixty six England World Cup, Cup winning team. You know, they they won the European Cup. The Fair, was it the Fairs Cup then? I think it, it was. Yes, it used to be called the Intercities Fairs Cup. That's right. And and so they really were integral to the history of English football. And I think this this says so much that. Now they've kind of they've sort of moved off to the Olympic Stadium. I, you know, yes, I agree with you that you know it is perhaps ultimately futile for for, for fans to protest. But equally, it was fans that made these clubs before the telly money come in comes came in. And the interesting thing for me is, yes, all these 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 clubs are now hugely reliant on telly money. And I think we might have sort of talked about this mm. before. If we get to a situation where people watch it on telly and they don't don't go to the grounds anymore if it gets to the situation almost like cricket when we've talked about this before mm. when you you know t our tv cameras gonna want to show half empty grounds with not much atmosphere i'm not convinced they will um and even if they do telly viewers if you watch something on telly the good thing about watching something on telly is that if it's a bit boring or you're not really enjoying it you can switch over to yeah. something else and i do wonder if this might you know this might ultimately destroy these kind of greedy millionaire owners that are getting fat on the tv money if that stops and you have alienated the people that used to come to watch your club that you know that, that everyone went to the football and it was very much a part of the culture if you turn your back on people eventually they'll turn their back on you and they won't be willing to turn back again so so i i I do agree with you that at the moment it seems futile for uh for people to protest when in fact it's not really about them it should be about them and one day owners of clubs will realize that to their ultimate cost i hope I think it's. I, I feel it's a double-edged sword because one of the reasons football clubs are all clamouring to build new stadiums is so that they can <laughs> increase the number of hospitality suites where people are prepared to pay far more than the usual cost. Yes, of seats. and that's a huge thing to it. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, such people. Well, our that, tunnel, the tunnel club that we talked well, about. Exactly, it's a perfect example. Exactly, and such people are much less likely to rebel or protest when they know they've got a nice glass of wine and canapes coming up at half time, and also that the the higher the cost cost of admission um, the less likely you get groups of young blokes sitting there uh, together getting angry but you see the other side to it which I say is you know the two sides to it, a double-edged thing is there was a time 
when I might have had some sympathy for fans who feel they are being left behind. But after reading these reports of nine-year-olds being trampled on as grown men at West Ham last week forced their way over them to shout at a 69-year-old and an 81-year-old mm. owner... The, the owners of West Ham. Um, you know, I, I'm afraid my final shreds of, of sympathy are evaporating. I actually, I think it's a little bit of a throwback to the pre-Taylor Report era of football, where essentially, do we really want these angry, shouty men, whatever their background? True, true. No, I do agree. I do agree with that. And, you know, so maybe we have to accept that um, rather as we did after the Hillsborough report and the terrible things that happened there, and maybe in a, a less violent and awful way, the West Ham incident last week is, is, a, is another turning point in which it, it, it may have to be said, we actually don't want those sort of people at football anymore. Not well, if you're taking, you know, a, an elderly person, a disabled person, no, a true, young person. true. I mean, but then, you know, but but there's there, the truth is over, it lies somewhere in between, mm. doesn't it, really? There must be a way of effectively stewarding and policing grounds so that you can keep these unsavoury elements out while still keeping football clubs in a way that can still interact with their communities. Yes, it's wrong that West Ham, some West Ham fans mm. behave in the way that they did but equally I also think it's you know I also think that it's incredibly naive if you think that you can take a football club away from from the community in which it was based and expect there not to be any consequences about that and that there shouldn't be any consequences about that quick further example which is just, uh, I noticed my own football club Chelsea I noticed um, on social media after we uh, lost to Barcelona in the Champions League on Wednesday um, some Chelsea fans saying oh they'd been attacked by stewards and security at the new camp at Barcelona I thought gosh that's awful why did that happen you know <laughs> and then you know and they were moaning and saying oh this is terrible and you know the club have got to stand by us and the, the, the you know the FA should get involved and you know come on Mrs May to talk about this and then once you start seeing videos of what actually happened you've got these Chelsea supporters turning up and chanting on their way into the stadium Barcelona you'll always be Spain in other words you know anti the independence yes. what the yes. hell it's got to do with some bloke no, from Woking yes. on Thames <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so eventually after this what seemed like a long time of provocation, some stewards reacted and biffed a few of the Chelsea oh, people. Well. So you know, but then they become snowflakes and say, "Oh, we were attacked," you know, without. Well, yes, exactly. Mm. What is good for the goose isn't mm. necessarily good for the gander. I guess it turns out. Coming next, everyday phrases that you just can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> That's right after Sade. <laughs>
It's been a while since we heard from Sade. Many of my generation look back to her debut album with great affection with tracks like uh, Smooth Operator, Your Love Is King. Mm, geez, did a smooth operator. <laughs> Very much so. Um, mm. That was a new track from Sade, and I've really fallen in love with it uh, in the last couple of weeks. It's officially released this week, and it's from the soundtrack to the upcoming movie A Wrinkle in Time. It mm. was Sade and Flower of the Universe. Really like that. It's lovely to hear from Sade again. I'm really glad she's back. This week, the sociologist and broadcaster Tom Shakespeare mentioned on the radio that he detests the modern way of using the phrase going forward in place oh, of yes, simply yes. saying in future. Uh, politicians are major offenders of this. They, they love yes, to say that true. economic conditions will improve going forward. Or uh, going forward, the country is going to hell in a handcart, depending well, on... Going the forward, the country is going backwards, from what <laughs> I, can, I can gather. Well, this led to many people on uh, social media naming their pet hates... Um, of modern phrases, people who say "my bad" uh, when they've mm. done something, or particularly mm. cringeworthy in the UK when people try to sound American and like real dudes in a coffee shop, say, <laughs> "Can I get 
a oh, skinny latte. That drives me up the wall. In, instead of saying, may I have. Um, in the workplace, some people can't abide their colleagues say that they are reaching out. Uh, oh, uh, yes. Uh, yet not being members of the four tops whilst doing so. That, that would be the only saving grace Except if you're in the four tops. Has, there is a, there is a, a, a graphic that, that mm. goes around on the internet, a flowchart saying, is it acceptable to, work, to say reach out in the workplace? Are you a member of the four tops? And if the answer is no, then it is not acceptable. <laughs> And people who preface other words with cheeky, for example, I'm just having a oh. cheeky Nando's or oh, let's God. go for a cheeky glass of Prosecco. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm not a fan of any of this. Jules, are there any phrases that make you want to shout and scream? Well, going on the, uh, or yell and Going holler, forward. Going- well, you, well, I want to yell and holler going down the why does everything have to be an, an Americanism route. And on that, on that sort of tip, on the weekend... It's at the weekend. Oh, man, yeah. It's on the weekend. Oh. What are you doing on the weekend? Well, given God. I can particularly climb onto at the weekend, I should be going shopping. And I, I find that frustrating. And mm. um, I spent ages trying to persuade my fellow workers when I worked for Marks and Spencers to say, here you are, instead of there you go. Oh. Um, that is very irritating. Um, lots of business speak, blue sky thinking, oh. singing from the same hymn sheet, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, my mum's pet hate, and I have to say I do often deliberately say this to wind her up, which is bad, <laughs> never mind, is she can't, uh, when you say, when she'll say, for example, oh, can you pass, can you pass those uh, potatoes over to me? If I say, what, these ones, she'll always go, these you don't want it superfluous so so i do find myself and she also gets annoyed and i find myself getting annoyed now people that say they are bored of something Mm. no you're with something Mm. i I, it's it's sloppy grammar and although you know there is a lot of grammar nazi type stuff which i think is rather unkind to people from different backgrounds equally i do there are certain phrases that i do find to be redundant and irritating and also you know i do i do think that we that we should be trying to maintain some kind of language standards, I think. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of um, of also the idea that um, we're not allowed to say brainstorm anymore because mm. apparently it is it is not very considerate towards epileptics. So oh. you have to say ideas cascade or mind shower. Oh lord! Oh lord! So, that's that's tricky. But um, no, I'm not a big fan of Americanisms in general and business talk that doesn't say anything. There's a couple of modern words that make me uh, wince, rather. Shading. Um, oh, look how Holly Willoughby shaded Philip this morning. I, oh, I, I mean, I, you can use the expression throwing shade, which oh. is which is a slightly... I don't have a problem with fl- throwing shade, but I do have a problem with shading. And the new use of the word woke, in that I have to stay uh, woke. Which, yeah, I mean, in, it, in its literal sense, it's a daily aspiration of mine to stay well, woke. Quite, but, uh, it's, it's all, I, mean, I occasionally use it as a sort of a kind of a Mickey take, really. I can kind of it's one of those words where I can understand what they're trying to say and actually given what's going on in the states at the moment and to some extent over here <laughs> is very relevant but it's just quite irritating in the way it's expressed isn't it I don't like hybrid words by the way staycation oh. I'm not very keen oh, on staycation yes I've got uh, one more and I need your help with this because I know you use okay. this word and I genuinely I'm, I'm rather unsure of it rather right, in, the, in the style of one of those old high court judges um, <laughs> I'm genuinely not a hundred percent sure what it means but i i know it's not okay. a, a it's not a good thing what am i doing if i'm gaslighting 
Ah, now this is interesting. Now this is actually a sort of a quite a, a deep psychological yeah. concept. So it was used very heavily. The recent storyline in the Archers to do with um, Helen and the abusive husband that she had, Rob. Right. The, if you gaslight someone, the idea is is that you're you're sort of messing with their perception of reality. Mm. So so you're sort of so it is often used in the context of of abusive relationships. Right. So. For example, um, you you can kind of you you use psychological means to sort of um, to, for someone to doubt their own sanity, basically. So, for example, in abusive relationship, doing things like kind of telling lies and then denying that you've ever said them right. and denying um sort of wearing people down and sort of generally um generally sort of just saying things like for example you know moving things and saying that you haven't moved them oh. it's it's to gaslight someone is not to do one thing in particular but it's a general course of conduct that kind of makes people feel like you know oh you'll just make it that's just in your head basically that's mm. kind of what the idea I wonder of about the derivation of the actual word though it doesn't matter if you don't I know think, I think it's from the film I think there is a film <gasps> called Gaslight and I think oh, it comes from that I'm I just see. that might be a Hitchcock film let me have a look I'm looking this up for you now um yeah it's a it's a film that um Oh, I see. It's, a, it's, a, it's an American 1944 mystery thriller film. It's not Hitchcock, but it could mm. be. Uh, adapted from Patrick Hamilton's play Gaslight about a woman whose husband slowly manipulates her into believing that she's going insane. So, th- And it had Ingrid Bourbon in it. So this I is where uh, Angela Lansbury peculiarly as well and Dame May Whitty. So it really is. It was an MGM film. It was, um, uh, it was distributed in 1944. So it really is. It, mm. it was directed by George Cukor and had Charles Boyer in it as well. Um, it I was, see. was a film called Gaslight as well. Mm. The first version was a British film, um, but they gave the this one the, the title in the UK, The Murder in Thornton Square. But it's but it comes it actually comes from a thing in popular culture that is now used as a general sort of expression. Oh, I'm glad you've cleared that up for me. I understand now. Well, a, a phrase that always brings joy. <laughs> what and where are you appearing amongst us this week? Well, I am. Um, there's no Saturday social this week. It's about next week, mm. and I will be doing in Wonderland oh. this coming Wednesday. That was unfortunately off this week due to technical problems, mm. but I am sorting things out today, so I shall be mm. back next Wednesday, the 21st of March, from 8 to 10 p.m. Um, doing um, indie alt rock and miscellaneous, basically. So, um, so that's what I think I'm going to be doing. That's so, if you'd like to join me, barricaderadio.com, it will be a pleasure. Thanks to you for listening, and yeah, um, yeah and thanks to executive producer Rona. Of course. Yes, always. Back to 1984 for our closing uh, track, Jules. Indeed, the year of my birth, mm. which I continue to be to some extent, sorry. Um, <laughs> this, this, um, I, I heard this the other day in a shop, I think, where I was, and I just thought it was it was just so nice to hear it again. Um, I And also, I did, this song I did struggle to take seriously as a youngster because I used to listen to, um, well, it's now hot because it's been franchised. And before that, it was Southern FM. And before that, it was Southern Sound, it was our local radio Ooh. station that fed East Sussex. It was based in Brighton and 
it had a um it had a, a, a comedian that was a local comedian that was called Terry Garrigan that was the self-styled unofficial mayor of Brighton <laughs> and he used to do a a late night show in the week called Terry Garrigan's last bus to Whitehawk uh, Whitehawk being a rather rough <laughs> rough estate area of Brighton and he did something called Brighton the musical and they used to occasionally play songs from it on the show and my friend had it on tape and we used to listen to it on the bus and he'd adapted various um, songs to reflect areas local to Brighton and Purple Rain um, became Burgess Hill and he would sing Burgess Hill to the tune of Purple Rain and they had the glorious dynasty, oh my god don't ever go to Hassocks which I think still pretty much <laughs> rings true nowadays but this is the original and probably the best version I think I have to concede that this is Prince and this is Purple Rain I never meant to call
You have been listening to a DAC Media production.